What a crazy weekend. A former prime minister has quit as MP, sparking a civil war in the Conservative Party. A former first minister has been arrested. Um, we're going to talk you through all the drama this evening. We're also going to talk about climate change because that's the other thing that's been on my mind for the past 48 hours because of the heat outside and some of the scary graphs I'm seeing on Twitter. Um, Ash, how are you doing? How are you tolerating the 30 degree heat? Are we allowed to say that? I know lots of, if you international viewers might be, like, well, what are you complaining about 30 degrees? But it feels hot to me. Does it feel hot to you? It's very hot. It's very muggy. But the one thing which brings me some semblance of comfort is that where I am is certainly not as hot as where Silvio Berlusconi is. <laughs> very good. Um, we, we, we weren't actually going to cover his passing today. So that will count as Navarra's obituary um, to Silvio Berlusconi, I suppose. The Tories are good at a few things, shredding the economy, whipping up anti-immigrant hatred and lining the purses of landlords and millionaires. But there's one area where, in the last few years anyway, they've excelled. And that's at laying into each other. And we've had no better show of it than the row that erupted this weekend after Boris Johnson suddenly announced his resignation as MP for Uxbridge and South Royslip. Um, he formally resigned this afternoon. That's right, Boris Johnson is no longer an MP. The drama began when the House of Commons Privileges Committee, who were investigating whether Johnson had lied over lockdown parties, reached their conclusions last week. Reportedly, it decided unanimously to sanction the former Prime Minister. Johnson was sent a letter of warning on Friday, as well as a dossier laying out the committee's evidence against him. By the end of the day, he'd quit. In a statement, Johnson gave his reasons for walking. He said, I have received a letter from the Privileges Committee making it clear, much to my amazement, that they are determined to use the proceedings against me to drive me out of Parliament. They still have not produced a shred of evidence that I knowingly or recklessly misled the Commons. They know perfectly well that when I spoke in the Commons, I was saying what I believed sincerely to be true and what I had been briefed to say like any other minister. They know that I corrected the record as soon as possible and they know that I and other senior officials and ministers, including the current prime minister and then occupant of the same building, Rishi Sunak, believed that we were working lawfully together. I've been an MP since 2001. I take my responsibilities seriously. I did not lie. And I believe that in their hearts, the committee know it. But they have willfully chosen to ignore the truth because from the outset, their purpose has not been to discover the truth or genuinely to understand what was in my mind when I spoke in the Commons. Their purpose from the beginning has been to find me guilty regardless of the facts. This is the very definition of a kangaroo court. Most members of the committee, especially the chair, had already expressed deeply prejudicial remarks about my guilt before they had even seen the evidence. They should have recused themselves. In retrospect, it was naive and trusting of me to think that these proceedings could be remotely useful or fair, but I was determined to believe in the system and in justice and to vindicate what I knew to be the truth. Key here, we haven't yet seen that privileges report. So he got foresight of it because it pertains to him. Um, they said he's done such a bad thing um, that he needs to be suspended for a, a period of time which would um, allow a by-election to take place. Um, and he's decided to walk before he was pushed, essentially. Um, as you can see from that letter, Boris Johnson thinks the only person not to blame for all of this is himself. The public appear to disagree. Um, says a YouGov poll from Saturday shows that 62% of the country agreed it was right for Johnson to quit, um, with just 19% thinking he shouldn't have done it. Now, I doubt that many of those um, came to that decision um, because they thought that he's been the victim of a witch hunt. 
And the view there was reflected by the audience at Radio 4's Any Questions on Friday. We don't usually do this on Any Questions. Of course, we do record on a Friday evening. It goes out on a Saturday. But I do want to bring you some news that's just broken on Friday evening, which is that Boris Johnson has resigned as an MP with immediate effect. Um, And we only, we only have. Thank you. Sorry. Thank, thank you very much for your reaction. So they were very happy. Um, at the same time as Johnson was stewing over that letter from the committee, the government published Johnson's resignation honours list. And it soon emerged the House of Lords Appointment Commission had vetoed eight of Johnson's nominations for peerages. That's the body that reviews nominations for people going into. And the House of Lords. Now, among the people blocked was Nadine Doris, who promptly resigned her seat. Later, Nigel Adams, who's another MP loyal to Johnson and was snubbed by a gong or for a gong, sorry, he'd also um, resigned. Um, the resignations of Johnson, Doris, and Adams will now trigger free by elections, which could cause a headache for Sunak. According to polling by The Telegraph, Labour would comfortably win Johnson's old Uxbridge and South Royslip seat, as well as Nigel Adams, Selby and Ainsty seat, although that would be closer, according to the polling. Um, in Nadine Dorries mid-Bedfordshire seat, the Tories still look set to win, but by a much reduced margin. Angry Johnson allies have accused Sunak of being petty by meddling with Johnson's list. He actually denies um, meddling with the list. But today, Sunak shot back with this. Is Boris Johnson undermining you? And did anyone at number 10 at any point meddle with his honours list? When it comes to uh, you know, honours and, and Boris Johnson, look, Bo Boris Johnson asked me to do something that I wasn't prepared to do because I didn't think it was right. Uh, that was to uh, you know, either overrule the HOLAC committee or to make promises with people. Now, I, I wasn't prepared to do that. As I said, I didn't think it was right. And if people don't like that, then tough. So that's Rishi Sunak saying, I didn't meddle in the list. He put forward his list. The House of Lords Appointment Committee, they crossed off some of the names. Boris Johnson wanted me to overrule them or put some pressure on them or to make promises to people that I couldn't keep. And I didn't do that. I, I was not willing to do that. So Rishi Sunak trying to distance himself from the former prime minister. He's probably seen the YouGov polling, which suggests people are kind of sick of the guy. Um, a few hours later, Boris Johnson responded. Um, he said, quote, Rishi Sunak is talking rubbish. Cabinet members have also been having their say. Leveling up minister and one-time Johnson ally Michael Gove was on LBC this morning. I think historians will want to reflect, I'm sure, on uh, all the different aspects of uh, all the different outworkings of politics and personalities over the last few years. But I think you're right that as well as reflecting on those things that uh, that may have gone wrong, those individual decisions that, uh, uh, you know, have led to difficulties for particular colleagues, we should also reflect on what the government overall has done to uh, improve the lives of individuals. You were discussing Ofsted earlier, the very, very sensitive matter, of course. But uh, in discussing Ofsted, we're inevitably looking at it uh, against a backdrop of an education system that's improved over the last 13 years to the extent that uh, children in England are the best readers in the Western world. Yes, I mean, my question, of course, was what went wrong for Boris Johnson, though? I don't quite know how we got on to Ofsted. What, what should he have done differently? How can we reflect on that? Well, again, uh, I think 
it's it's inevitably uh, difficult for me, having served in Boris's government, having wanted him to succeed and feeling a sense of sadness at his passing. Um, I think it would be premature for me to pass a definitive judgment of that kind. Uh, I, I think it's better for commentators, columnists, historians and others to, to draw their own conclusions. What I can do is reflect on uh, those government successes that occurred while Boris was prime minister and thank him for the role that he played in showing leadership, as I mentioned earlier, on the pandemic, on Ukraine and on Brexit. Former Defence Minister and long-time Johnson critic Tobias Elwood had another assessment. Commenting on rumours that Johnson has been encouraging even more MPs to resign, he told LBC this. Far from emulating his hero Churchill, this is the opposite. It's selfishly and blatantly abandoning colleagues on the battlefield. His actions are akin to mutiny in calling for other MPs to quit their seats too, to maximise harm to the parties. And I make it very, very clear that, you know, wise leaders turn crises to opportunities. And that's exactly what the Prime Minister needs to do now. Seize this moment, draw a line under Johnson's endless factionalism and declare that any MP triggering a by-election at this point should also be invited to leave the party. I'll go further and say the Prime Minister should now uh, advance a radical reshuffle, inviting more competent, disciplined Conservatives into the Cabinet committed to his agenda. Jake Berry, former Tory party chair and staunch Johnson ally, took a different view of what's happened over the past few days. He told Sky News this. Yeah, people voted for Brexit and the establishment tried to block it. I stand by that. That was definitely my experience working as a minister in Theresa Gay's government. And the establishment uh, has uh, has seen Boris out the door. I think, you know, if people look at the facts, then they will, they will, or they either will or won't agree with me. But they can look at the facts just as I can. The most colourful bit of retrospection this weekend came from Johnson's old boss, Max Hastings. Um, He was editor of the Daily Telegraph and gave Johnson a job after the Times sacked him for lying. Um, Writing in the Sunday Times, this was Hastings' view of the disgraced former MP. He is perhaps the most selfish human being I have ever met, indifferent to the welfare of anyone save himself. It is striking that he has few, if any, personal friends. He demands loyalty but is incapable of giving it to others. He has neither principles nor personal convictions, save his own ambitions or save about his own ambitions and desires. Far from being the genial Mr. Nice Guy he seeks to project, Tony Soprano would find him a tad ruthless. Ash. A very dramatic weekend. Uh, people are talking about civil war in the Tory party. Is is it a civil war in the Tory party? Or is, do you think there's sort of a genuine consensus or a general consensus that everyone's bored of Boris Johnson now? I think people have gotten very bored of Boris Johnson. If there was a point where civil war might happen, it would have been that moment last year when he had scores of ministers resigning and he was clinging on to a door frame in number 10, screaming, I ain't going nowhere. Um, but what many Tory MPs decided is that he was no longer useful as either an electoral vehicle or a media performer. He had single-handedly trashed the polling lead that the 2019 general election had gifted him. He'd squandered that 80-seat majority. and he looked incapable of holding together that electoral coalition of traditional safe Tory seats in the South and newly flipped red wall ones in the Midlands and the North. And 
for as much as Boris Johnson is someone who's ruthless, someone who seeks only to advance his own interests, well, that's the same with the Conservative Party. Outside of a few, you know, kamikaze diehards like Nadine Dorries, there aren't very many people who'd be willing to sacrifice their own careers for someone who right now looks a lot like a 2019 has been. The hacks have turned. That polling lead was never going to come back. Why should they stick with him? And I think that in terms of the decision to give up his post as an MP, it is patently obvious that after he had been, you know, all but evicted from Downing Street, Boris Johnson had zero interest in representing the people of Uxbridge. He did not like that seat. He was quite openly and brazenly shopping around for a safer one from which he could then possibly try and stage a political comeback. There had been soundings around the time of Liz Truss's resignation, but everyone kind of agreed that it was too soon. And Rishi Sunak, he's not going anywhere right now. He doesn't have the strongest support within the Conservative Party, but then again, neither does anybody else. There isn't an obvious contender or rival. And I think with a general election getting ever closer, and Uxbridge does look like one of the seats that is going to go from Conservative to Labour. It'd been on that track for a really long time. It's a bit like uh, Chingford and Woodford Green in that way, is that it's part of that outer ring of London boroughs, which is steadily becoming more Labour supporting as Labour voters get priced out of the middle of the city and start moving further out towards the suburbs. Demographics are changing, values are changing, so on and so forth. He was looking for an exit strategy. Now, I think he would have preferred one uh, where he could stage a comeback, but it's not to be. I think that Boris Johnson also knows that there's going to be no shortage of paid opportunities for him as an individual. Only now, there'll be a hell of a lot less scrutiny over who he gets his loans from and who indeed uh, has gone ahead with helping him secure that loan. So I think he can have, uh, for Boris Johnson, a more enjoyable quality of life outside of Parliament. And he can plot and he can scheme and he can read the waters later down the line and go, okay, well, if the Conservatives are in opposition and they're tearing each other apart and they've kind of forgotten that I'm a total liability. I'm popular amongst much of the membership, the media, sure they turned on me, but maybe they could be won back around. Maybe in a couple of years time, he thinks CCHQ aren't going to torpedo my bid for a safe seat. Um, so I think that it is remarkable, if not entirely surprising, that he decided to turn his back on his own constituency. Um, I'm sure many of his ex-wives could say he's got a habit of doing that. Um, but it's not necessarily the end. And this is something which I've thought for a while, which is the thing that got Boris Johnson wasn't really about what he did to the country. It wasn't about his handling of the coronavirus pandemic. It's not about the fact that levelling up has been a total crock of shit. It's about a Westminster story. It's not about something which impacts many people's lives outside of SW1. And so while that means that the hacks can get very offended on everyone's behalf and, oh, how low the noble art of politics has, has sunk, um, that does mean, I think, there's a way back because people remember what you did to the country, if that's the thing that you had to leave office based on. I think 
as we saw with the many comebacks of the dearly departed Silvio Berlusconi, if you try and get somebody on democratic norms and integrity, it's not going to stick. They've got too many allies in the press and you're amenable to serving too many powerful people's you know, particular purposes. Which is why maybe some people are trying to take the decision out of his hands. So this is a tweet from Christopher Hope. Uh, he's at the Telegraph. Boris Johnson could be banned for life from Parliament, he says. And um, the privileges report due in the next 48 hours. So that's that report of MPs um, into whether Boris Johnson lied to Parliament. MPs will then vote in the middle of next week. What they vote on is is whether to accept the, the, the judgments of that committee report. And then he says, Labour MPs might amend motion to add in a permanent ban from the Commons. Johnson's team say this is not possible. I've got no idea whether or not that is possible. Ash, to me, that seems a bit far. I mean, it's, it's very anti-democratic to just sort of say, we're going to ban you by law from standing for election, isn't it? Well, look, if Keir Starmer could do that to members of his own party, I think that he would. Um, I mean, this might be one of the areas where Labour pushed their luck a bit too far. I think it sounds a bit anti-democratic. And while Conservatives are more than happy to bludgeon each other to death, they really don't want much help from the opposite side. And I think that that semblance of party unity might kick in. And then what you've got is a failed amendment. Let's go to someone outside of the party. Nigel Farage is sensing an opportunity. He spoke to Laura Koonsberg on Sunday. There is a Brexiteer prime minister. We really? have left the, Euro really? the European Union. Yeah, Rishi Sunak was a Brexiteer. I never saw him. He's in charge. Well, he was on that side in the Leave campaign. We have left the European Union. There's a government with a big majority that could, if they wanted go much further in terms of the changes that they yes. want to make. Well, that's the They've point. chosen not to make that decision. Yeah. But it's not credible, is it, to say the decisions of Rishi Sunak add up to a plot to subvert Brexit? Oh, I'm not saying Rishi Sunak himself is involved in a plot. Uh, but what we do know is the big corporates, um, elements of the media, would love to reverse what happened with a Brexit referendum. And with Rishi Sunak, by not getting rid of EU law, by not diverging makes it very easy for Keir Starmer to sign us straight back up to a single market. Which, of course, he says and has said repeatedly that he will not do. But I wonder, you talk there about a kind of gap in the political market. Mm. Have any Conservative MPs been in touch with you saying they might be interested? More than before. I think there are quite a lot of Conservative MPs right now who know they're going to lose their seats. The Red Wallers know they're going to lose their seats, as it is, running as Conservatives. And if there was a coming together on the centre-right, which is where the gap is... I think quite a few would. How many then? You say more have been in touch well, with you potentially, before. Potentially, double figures would not be hard to see. You suggest that more than 10 Conservative MPs might be in the mood to walk away and join, join some kind of outfit with you? Well, I think it needs, I think it needs to be more than just me. You know, I, I think you, know, you can have one person leading a party into a European election or something like that. A general election, you've got to have a range of talents. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what Boris Johnson's going to do. But I see a bigger gap for an insurgency today than it did before. Ash, I mean, opportunistic as ever, I am sure. But is he correct that there's a bigger gap for an insurgency than, than before? No, I think that's a load of horse shit. I mean, there might be gap for an insurgency, but it's certainly not going to be over Brexit. One of the reasons why... I think Boris Johnson secured such a large majority in 2019 was that he promised one thing and one thing only. It was that the paralysis, the impasse of Brexit would be over. 
it was a three-word campaign. It was get Brexit done. And I wouldn't be surprised if that was a slogan which polled exceptionally well, both amongst Leave voters and also Remain voters. People were sick of the dog and pony show. They were sick of Brexit dominating the airwaves. They were sick of nothing else getting done in any other area of politics. And I think that there was a consensus of like, oh my God, enough already. Let's just do this thing. And look, it was an appealing slogan to me. I was like, fuck me, I want Brexit done as well. So if Nigel Farage hopes to, you know, rally the troops for one last suicidal advance over the top, I mean, fine. But people aren't going to follow him because there simply isn't any public appetite for a redo of Brexit, for a redefinition of Brexit, for there to be another election for on what really is Brexit and how do you get it. What people want is for a functioning government. And that's not something that Nigel Farage has ever promised that he's capable of delivering. And it's not something that the Conservatives are going to magic out their asshole by trying to rerun the years 2016 to 2019. I'm sure Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson, if they club together, have the wits to sort out all of our country's problems. Don't clip that. Don't take me out of context. I was being sarcastic. We're going to go on to our next story. It's been a difficult year for the Scottish National Party. First, their phenomenally popular leader stood down. Then they had an incredibly acrimonious leadership contest, after which two SNP officials were arrested by the police. That was part of an investigation into party finances. Now, though, it's got even worse. That's because former First Minister Nicola Sturgeon was arrested on Sunday, held by police for around seven hours. She was later released without charge. The arrest of the former First Minister is a pretty shocking event, which is how Sturgeon described the arrest on social media, releasing this statement. To find myself in the situation I did today when I am certain I have committed no offence is both a shock and deeply distressing. I know that this ongoing investigation is difficult for people and I am grateful that so many continue to show faith in me and appreciate that I would never do anything to harm either the SNP or the country. Innocence is not just a presumption I am entitled to in law. I know beyond doubt that I am in fact innocent of any wrongdoing. But for anyone who's been following recent political events in Scotland, Sturgeon's arrest can't have come as a total surprise. Um, the arrest happened as part of Police Scotland's Operation Branch Form, which is a two-year-long investigation into SNP campaign finances. In April, the police sealed off the Glasgow home Sturgeon shares with her husband, Peter Murrell. Murrell, who was the former chief executive of the SNP, was then arrested and later released without charge. At the same time, Police Scotland raided the SNP's headquarters in Edinburgh, leaving with crate loads of documents. Later that same month, SNP treasurer Colin Beattie was also arrested. He too was later released without charge, resigning as treasurer the next day. Police Scotland began to investigate the SNP in 2021 after the party had raised over £600,000 for a second Scottish independence referendum in 2017. The problem, of course, there never was a second referendum, and yet the party's 2020 accounts showed it only had £97,000 in the bank. When Sturgeon announced her surprise resignation in February this year, some people wondered whether the ongoing police investigation played a part. Sky's Beth Rigby interviewed her after that announcement. There's also an ongoing police investigation sure. to use of funds. We wouldn't expect you to comment on that. But there's a suggestion you and your husband will be interviewed. Have you heard anything on that? No, but I am not going to comment on... I wouldn't comment on any ongoing police investigation and I'm not going to comment on this one. So you haven't heard, but 
it must have been put pressure on you and your husband, hand on heart. Did this play any no. part in your departure and your hasn't. decision? No. Despite Sturgeon being released without charge, some in the SNP have smelled blood. Ash Regan unsuccessfully ran for SNP leader in March. She appeared on Sky News where she said this. My view is that I think Nicola should be considering whether it would be the right thing for her to do, for her commitment to the party, and also uh, for the smooth running of the, the government. Um, because I think this could be seen as a little bit of a distraction right now um, for her to resign her party membership. Even if she says uh, she absolutely um, in, uh, suggests that she has done nothing wrong at all, so why should she uh, step back, I suppose, which she would say in response? Mm -hmm. That's right. So everyone is obviously innocent until proven guilty. This is nothing to do with any um, inference of guilt or otherwise. Um, this is purely about how the party and the individuals within the party and the leadership, how we um, best navigate this situation. I think this is, uh, we've obviously seen the arrest of a number of senior figures in the party over the last little while now. I think that it is proving to be a distraction. So I think it would be in the best interest of the party if um, Nicola Sturgeon were to consider voluntarily resigning. Other SNP members have demanded more than Sturgeon's resignation. Angus McNeil is an SNP MP. He posted this on social media. This soap opera has gone far enough. Nicola Sturgeon suspended others from the SNP for an awful lot less. Time for political distance until the investigation ends either way. So he thinks she should be suspended. Adding to those calls for Sturgeon's suspension was Scottish Labour Deputy Leader Jackie Bailey. This was her on Radio 4's Today programme. In these circumstances... In her time as leader, Nicola Sturgeon suspended a whole host of people pending investigation for perhaps less. Derek Mackay, Mark MacDonald, Natalie McGarry, Michelle Thompson, all of these are parliamentarians. The list goes on. So the question in my mind is, given all this chaos, given the kind of secrecy and cover-up that has been the hallmark of how the SNP operate, is whether Hamza Youssef, the current First Minister, is indeed strong enough to suspend her and protect the party. I've no doubt in my mind he absolutely needs to do this. If there is no criminality eventually, and as we've heard, Nicola Sturgeon absolutely denies it on her part, and she has been released without charge, and so there's other people that you mentioned. If in the end of this investigation, the Scottish police find, as they may well do, that nothing criminal has been done, what anyway, in your view, is the impact on Scottish politics? Well, I think the impact has been profound, irrespective of what the outcome is. And of course, the police need to proceed without interference. Um, and you're quite right, guilt has yet to be established, or indeed otherwise. But the political consequences are, you know, the SNP appealed to the people of Scotland based on them having, projecting an image of being kind of morally superior to the corrupt politics, if you like, of the rest of the UK. Now, that clearly doesn't work anymore for them. And I think it's been a huge setback for the independence movement as well, because Nicola Sturgeon was the face of it. Um, it was dominated by the SNP. And voters that I speak to who supported independence are wondering what on earth is going on. And they're losing trust so there's a fair amount of pressure on new SNP leader and Scottish First Minister Hamza Youssef to act. But would he? Well, he gave this reaction to the arrest. As you can imagine, it's been personally quite painful. I've 
spoken about my friendship, long-standing friendship with Nicola Sturgeon over many years. Um, and I can imagine it, and I know it's been, of course, a difficult day for her and a difficult day for our party and for those that know uh, Nicola Sturgeon, as I have done for, for well over 15 years. Um, what I would say is I've got to separate that out from the role as First Minister, and that role as First Minister makes it incumbent upon me to ensure I don't, of course, intervene or comment in a live police investigation. Have you spoken to her yesterday or since the arrest? No, no, no. And look, for all that Nicola Sturgeon and I uh, will speak um, and have spoken in, in the past, we know that both of us can never ever talk about a live police investigation, so that would be inappropriate for me to do so. Are you considering suspending her from the party? No, I see no reason to do so. Nicola was released without charge. And I think it's important to emphasise that point. She was released without charge. Uh, and therefore, I see no reason to have to suspend. There's no pressure on her to have to do so. Certainly no pressure from me nor, nor, nor from the party. As I've said, she was released without charge. And therefore, I, mean, I don't see any reason for her to have to suspend her membership. Ash, I'm inclined to agree with that. If someone is released without charge, why should they be suspended from... A political party? I mean, do you, what's your take on this? As a matter of principle, if you're arrested and released without charge, I don't think that that should have an impact on you being a member of a political party or what whip, if any, you hold if you're sitting in parliament. However, I think that the tweet from Angus McNeil exposed what the reality of this is all about. It's about political distance and it's about optics. And it's about, I think, forcing Hamza Yusuf into a really uncomfortable position, which is, do you try and present yourself as a bastion of clean politics? You've never once got your hands dirty. And of course, that's difficult when many of the individuals who are being investigated are very close political allies, people who you've worked very closely with for many years. So do you try and distance yourself politically from the cloud of suspicion by going, okay, right, having nothing to do with you, the SNP as a brand is going to be wholly oriented away from Nicola Sturgeon. And with that comes risks. It comes, it's a massive risk because once you may not have done anything wrong, I think that in terms of political risks, that's actually fairly low down. We know that once the narrative machine kicks into gear, it doesn't really matter what you've done or not done. The idea and the story in the media is pretty much set. The media doesn't really change its mind on someone once they've started setting the hounds are running. Um, I think more to the point is that within the SNP, there's an awful lot of division uh, in terms of how this should be handled. And Nicola Sturgeon was a kind of once-in-a-generation political talent, really well-supported within her party's membership. And I think this early into Humza Yusuf's premiership, he's still trying to establish himself, what he's about and how he wants to be seen and what he wants his defining project to be. Now, unfortunately for him, that's turned into how are you going to deal with the investigation into the SNP's finances. It's a very long way from securing independence or a second referendum. So this is about, I think, uh, political distance. It's about forcing Hamza Yusuf into that really uncomfortable position. And I think that the phrasing in that interview with Nick Robinson was really interesting. It was I think the classic strategy that was also employed um, when it came to Jeremy Corbyn, which is 
prove you're a serious politician by doing this thing which might severely hamstring you. Um, and of course, there's an element of disingenuousness about that. Um, prove you're a strong enough politician to cut yourself off from a base of support. Um, you can see why Hamza Yusuf isn't falling over himself uh, to do just that. It's not ideal, is it? It's not the ideal circumstances to become first minister and leader of a political party. And I think, you know, Labour will be sensing an opportunity um, in Scotland in the next general election. That seemed to be impossible to win back Scotland. It's now seeming much more possible than it once did. Let's go on to our next story, climate related, incredibly important. Um, I have rather enjoyed the sunny weekend we've just had. What's been less enjoyable is looking at the latest charts on climate change. This has been doing the rounds on social media. This chart was plotted by a retired mathematics professor called Elliot Jacobson. Each line is a different year between 1982 and 2023. And what it shows you is how on each day of the year, the temperature of the sea surface in the North Atlantic differed from the mean over that period. The red line is 2023. And as you can see, it's way above all the other years. The temperature of the North Atlantic sea surface is currently a full degree above the 40-year average. It looks pretty scary. Um, I was pretty worried looking at it. And earlier today, I asked climate scientist Ella Gilbert whether we should be concerned. So the North Atlantic is a really important place in our global climate. It's a really crucial driver of our global currents, and that has really important impacts for our weather and for our climate worldwide. To see an almost a degree hotter temperature in the North Atlantic is really quite uh, astounding, and it's something that there's been a lot of attention on in the climate science community in the last uh, couple of days and weeks. And the main uh, the main thing to note is that this comes against, of course, a background of an ongoing trend, a warming trend, a climate warming trend, um, which is seeing our oceans heating really dramatically. It's not just our atmospheric and surface temperatures that are warming. It's also uh, our oceans. The oceans are absorbing a huge amount of heat that we're generating from human activity. And the oceans are a really important part of our whole Earth system. So this is something that is quite striking and, yes, alarming. Why does it matter if the oceans are getting warmer? What effect does that have? So oceans are a, something that moderates our climate. You may be familiar with the Gulf Stream that impacts our weather and climate in, uh, in Europe, keeps it much warmer than it would otherwise be. But the temperature of the ocean is important for marine life. It's important for our weather and climate patterns. It's important for global ocean currents. And that has an impact um, all over the world, essentially. I mean, if you've got a warmer ocean in the Arctic, for example, uh, it's going to melt away lots of the ice that's in the Arctic. And that has knock-on impacts. It accelerates the degree of warming. That's, in fact, the reason that the Arctic is warming four times faster than the rest of the planet. So it has these kind of knock-on consequences all across the world. And it's it's not just uh, constrained to the North Atlantic. So it has really like, cascades of impacts, if you like. So on the theme of melting ice, I've got another very scary graph I want to show you. So it's from the same math mathematics professor. And this is now referring to the ice, which is currently in the Antarctic. So each line here represents a year since 1991. Um, you can see 2023 is looking exceptional for all the wrong reasons. So compared to the 30-year average, there is currently two 
million square kilometers of ice less than we would expect at this time of year. Now, Ella, I know you're an expert in the Antarctic. Um, is that graph as worrying as it looks to me? The Antarctic sea ice is really complicated. So with the North Atlantic sea surface temperature anomaly, that's partly related to something that's kind of unrelated to climate. The reason it's so big is because we haven't got as much Saharan dust at the moment uh, over the ocean, which is actually when you have more dust, it blocks lots of incoming energy, which means that the ocean doesn't heat up as much. So having less dust means that the ocean is heating up a lot. And that's something that would happen randomly kind of anyway. And in the same way, Antarctic sea ice can be very icy in some years and very not icy in other years. And that kind of natural year to year variability is always going to be happening. But then if you superimpose that on top of the kind of background trend that we've got, then it can start, you can start to see the signal. And for years and years and years, the Antarctic sea ice was not changing very much, or if it was changing, it was a slight increase year on year. And it's only in the last kind of five, six, seven years or so that Antarctic sea ice has started to drop. And this is what we'd expect, this is what we see in the Arctic. You'd expect with a warming climate, warming oceans, warming atmosphere, you would see less and less ice because obviously warm oceans, warm atmosphere melts ice. But for years, we hadn't really seen that. And it's only since 2016 or so that we've started to see the Antarctic sea ice respond in the way that we might expect. This year has been particularly warm, especially around the coast of the Antarctic Peninsula. And we've had really strong westerly winds, which kind of pushes warm air um, and high winds. It kind of makes the, the sea ice break up. So there's lots of different factors conspiring together to create an exceptionally low sea ice year in the Antarctic. Um, it may be that this sort of trend to look a bit more like the Arctic with much less ice year on year is starting to emerge, but it's still really too early to tell because seven years in, in climate change is not really enough to draw a, a really robust conclusion about the trend. From my perspective, the scariest thing about climate change is this idea of, of tipping points and the two ones that sort of make a lot of sense to me. I, I know there are many sort of positive feedback loops, but this is the one whereby climate change causes wildfires, wildfires release carbon dioxide into the air and that increases climate change. And then you've got the ones with the ice, which is the ice melts. And that means that less um, of the, you know, the the power of the sun reflects back and it gets absorbed into the, the earth instead. So it's a, the, the consequences of climate change cause more climate change. And at some point it could push us over the edge into some sort of you know self-reinforcing tipping point. We're obviously seeing wildfires at the moment. New York's in, in smog. We've just been talking about ice receding. I mean... Does it even make sense to ask, are we close to a tipping point? Is that, is that a sensible question in, in the climate debate? It's a really tough one. And it's something that is kind of a hot topic at the moment. So tipping points, we typically think about them as being like a critical threshold. And after we exceed or we go past that threshold, everything is kind of, it's irreversible. And the idea of tipping points makes sense when we kind of zoom out and we think about things over the really long term. So it's not like on, you know, if there's a temperature threshold for, I don't know, the collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet, for, for instance, if it's, I don't know, 1.8 degrees Celsius, say, it's not like on June the 16th, 2142, we're going to be at 1.79 degrees. And then as soon as we go over that, it's, that's it, gone, we're in, we've tipped and it's never going to come back because it's not like that 
short term, if it makes sense. It's much longer term and tipping points are really helpful and reminders of the urgency to take action, the need that we have to do absolutely everything we can to avoid the highest levels of warming. But we're still learning a lot about them. First of all, where the thresholds are, whether the thresholds are kind of single values of temperature. I suspect they're probably not. They're probably more likely to be a range and it probably depends on a whole bunch of different factors happening all at the same time. And also it depends on the time frame that we're thinking about. So you could, I could foresee a, a tipping point happening or the actual, the moment of the tip, if you like, happening over not just a single point in time, over half of many decades, many centuries, perhaps even. Um, and it's not, it's a helpful concept because we need to think about the highest risk, highest impact events, for example, the collapse of ice sheets, but to think about them as like all or nothing, binary sort of yes or no's is a little bit misleading because there's still, first of all, so much we don't know about them. And also there's a huge degree of uncertainty about where that threshold lies for pretty much every single tipping point. Uh, finally, I keep hearing about El Nino. It's worrying me. I'm kind of warm already. Can you explain in, in the most basic terms, what is El Nino? Why is everyone talking about it? And I suppose also, how long will it last? So El Nino is one half of a two-sided coin called the El Nino Southern Oscillation. It basically describes this pattern that flips between two kind of opposite poles, if you like. And it it's basically centered around the, the temperatures of the ocean at the surface in the tropical Pacific. When you have warm ocean surface in the Pacific, it's El Nino, and it tends to amplify global temperatures on average. We've just been in a La Nina, which is the opposite, where you have cooler temperatures at the surface of the Pacific, and that tends to, tends to kind of dampen temperatures. The, the US uh, NOAA agency has just announced that we've officially entered an El Nino, which means that it's likely that temperatures on top of the climate trend are likely to be warmer. Um, it's usual that an El Nino would last between two and three years, depending on how long it is. Um, and I mean, some research that was published a couple of months ago uh, said that we're very likely to exceed the temporarily exceed the one and a half degree threshold in the next five years. And it's, I think it was a 98 percent chance of uh, breaking the, the current record temperature average over the whole world um, in the next five years. So El Nino is very likely to add to that. So it's almost certain that we will break our temperature records. I think the last one was in 2016 um, for this coming, the coming couple of years. And El Nino is going to be a big part of that. That was Ella Gilbert speaking to me earlier today. Um, and before that interview, I said I enjoyed, I personally had enjoyed the sun this weekend. Not everyone did though.
So for those listening on the podcast, that was footage of one of the King's guards collapsing in the heat. His colleagues carried on playing. Um, he then tried to carry on playing before some people ran on with a stretcher. Um, Ash, I'm sure you can find some kind of allegory for, for modern Britain in that clip we just watched. One, I can really relate because it is massively hot in this room. But you know what I'm not doing? I'm not playing a fucking trombone and I'm not being made to wear a ridiculous bearskin hat and trousers, which I would wager are made of 100% wool. Um, As for the metaphor in there, I think it really is a metaphor for the way in which governments are failing to acknowledge the realities of climate change. Now, often when we talk about dealing with the reality of climate change, we're talking about decarbonisation. We're talking about drastically cutting the amount of carbon we put into the atmosphere and using the carbon capture technology that we have available to us, hint, it's called trees. Um, But it's also about adaptation. It's also about going, okay, well, how do we adapt to the reality of increased extreme weather events, whether it's something like flood, extreme cold during winter when you're not expecting it, um, or indeed extreme heat like last summer. Um, We saw infrastructure literally melt on the west coast of the USA. We saw excess deaths in this country for the hottest day of the year exceed 600 individuals. Um, We saw people report ill health, inability to work, huge amounts of disruption to people's lives, their health and their livelihoods. Now, what is being done to acknowledge that reality? What legislation is being brought in to make sure that we're climate adapting? Nothing. We're doing absolutely nothing. So the band keeps playing. Politics as usual goes on. Boris Johnson throws his toys out the pram. Keir Starmer does a purge. But what we're not doing is looking at the fact that the room is on fire all around us. And yet we still insist on wearing our bearskin hats, wearing our wool trousers and playing the trombone. It doesn't occur to us that there might be adaptations that could help us deal with increased global heating or indeed that we could do something to stop it in its tracks. Yeah, I like that as sort of a form of climate adaptation. Like, you know, climate adaptation, incredibly important, often seems, you know, very, very physically difficult when it comes, you know, engineering huge sea walls to protect Manhattan, for example. In this instance, all we need to do is let the King's Guards play the trumpet without their big hats on and maybe give them a linen shirt instead of a woolen one. We've got one story left for you tonight, but it's great to see over two and a half thousand of you have tuned in. If you're a new viewer or you're a regular viewer, then welcome. Of course, this show and all of Navarro Media is powered by all of you. So if you want to fund independent, truthful media, you can do so by donating one hour's wage per month or whatever you can afford at navarromedia.com slash support. The link is also in the description to this video. We really, really, really um, do appreciate it. The national media has pretty much moved on from Starmer's power grab in the northeast. Who cares if a sitting mayor is blocked for spurious reasons? They're left-wing anyway. That's what you can hear out of SW1 at the moment. Um, however, local media still does seem interested in local democracy. Jamie Driscoll, so that's the current mayor of North of Tyne, who's been blocked from standing to be Northeast mayor, was interviewed on the BBC's Politics North on the weekend. 
It's actually really quite shocking, isn't it? I'm a mayor in power. Everybody across politics says that I do this without playing daft political games. We've got a really good track record of delivery and have been working with a Tory government to get billions of pounds for our region. And now to be told that I'm good enough to be a mayor, but I'm not good enough to be a candidate for mayor. Where's the logic in that? All we're asking for is to let local members here make that decision. The fact is you shared a platform with Ken Loach, a man expelled for Labour because of his views on anti-Semitism or supporting people who had views on anti-Semitism that were seen as unacceptable. Wasn't that a huge mistake? Let's challenge this. Ken Loach was not expelled for anti-Semitism. All I did was... Well, he supported people who, 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 who left the party and would not support the Labour's policy well, on that. Let's not get into the arguments of processes about someone else, but I think that is contested. What I did was talk to Ken Loach at the live theatre about films and about arts and life in general, not about politics, certainly not about anything to do with the Labour Party. And your channel, the BBC, has funded his latest film. We've had on Look North a load of interviews with Ken Loach. Nobody in our region remotely believes that that is promoting anti-Semitism in any way. It's a smokescreen. And this has been going on for a long time. We've seen a pattern of behaviour of people across the Labour Party being taken out because they support the policies that Keir Starmer was elected as Labour leader on. What I'm asking for is just to let the members decide. Why don't we let them make that judgment? Why is it people in London Labour HQ taking me out? Close Starmer ally Jenny Chapman was on the same show defending Labour's position. Politics isn't always fair. Sometimes this is about, right. this is about getting the best outcome for the people okay. of the North East. It's not about an internal row within the Labour Party. OK, but the, 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 the pattern of, yeah, Jamie Driscoll mentioned pattern of behaviour. And it's not just mm. this election, isn't it? We've had resignations in Sedgefield. We've had resignations in Copeland over candidates from the left effectively being excluded. It does feel a bit startling, doesn't it? I mean, you know, there was no, mention, I think... come of, on. Well, oh, come well on. there's reports at two Labour Party meetings this week of uh, being, members being told they shouldn't mention Jamie Driscoll on legal advice and anyone bringing up his name would face disciplinary action. This is about getting the right outcome for the people of the North East. Well, even stifling debate. I mean, Labour's supposed to be look, we're you know, not fighting here. for democracy all no, the time, but, but within its own party, it's saying, don't even mention this man's name. No, look, I mean, the Labour Party is all about winning this election so we can have a champion for the North East who can deliver for people in their communities. That's what this is about. If people want to join a debating society or have a chat about this or that individual then they're welcome to do that. But that's not what well, the Labour Party is for. Apparently not in these for. Labour Party meetings. That they can't not, even talk about that it. That is not what the Labour Party is for, Richard. Sincerely, this region has been through so much over recent years. We need to have a leader in the region who can be that champion for us here. And if the Labour Party has to upset a few people and tread on some toes in order to get there, so then the, I support that. the party that. members' views here, who are equally I'm passionate... I'm a party member. <clears throat> Yeah, I'm no, but you're one, member. aren't you? There's thousands yeah. who've not gained a chance to have a say. They will get their say and they can choose their candidate and then we get out there and we campaign behind that candidate and we win that election. That's what really matters. They will get their say. They just can't choose the candidate who's the current sitting mayor because they're a bit too left-wing for Keir Starmer's liking. So that's, that's what democracy in the Labour Party currently means. Also very interesting, the very beginning of that clip says sometimes, you know, sometimes things aren't fair. I mean, you, you can you can say that about sort of like coincidence and pure chance. Yeah, sometimes, you know, you break you fall over, you break your leg before a concert you really wanted to go to. Yeah, sometimes life isn't fair. But this isn't an act of God. I mean, he, 
Keir Starmer might think he's God, but this is not what we normally think of as an act of God. This is a conscious political decision from people at the top of the party that say, well, life's not always fair. Right. Well, maybe you should make it as fair as you can make it instead of making it actively more unfair than it already is, which is what the people at the top of the Labour Party are doing. People in the grassroots of the party in the northeast do not seem particularly pleased with what's going on. So the final nominations by the relevant constituency Labour parties for the northeast mayoral election have come in. Um, it's pretty interesting. So Kim McGuinness, um, who is the candidate favoured by Keir Starmer, nine CLPs have nominated her, um, but eight have nominated none, um, and three um, CLPs have had no meetings. Um, so you can see that you know Kim McGillis, I suppose, has has won, um, but the people who have nominated none, one would presume, might have gone for Jamie Driscoll, and the people who haven't had a, a meeting, I mean, we, we we don't know what that, what's going on there. So it doesn't seem like a, a particularly positive way for one to be selected as a mayoral candidate, which is to have the incumbent blocked for spurious reasons, and then have a bunch of people refuse to even engage in the process. Ash, I want your take. What did you make of that defence from Jenny Chapman? I thought it was an absolutely dreadful justification for what I think is plain to see is an undemocratic intervention into a candidate selection to just say, oh, well, life's not fair. Well, but that's what you say when something is outside of your control. This is in your control. You could make this fair if you wanted to. But you've chosen not to out of pure factional interest. It's not because that's going to be any better for the region that Mayor Jamie Driscoll represents. It's not because it better serves your party membership. And it certainly doesn't serve the voters who are being denied an opportunity to cast their ballot for a man who contested and won the previous election. And one of the things that is often used as a justification for Starmerite purges, it's very rarely justified on its own moral merits, because there aren't any, it's often justified as, well, this is what you've got to do if you're serious about winning. If you're serious about winning, you've got to get the right candidates with a track record about winning. It's not about the principles, it's about gaining power. Now, that's obviously not an argument that I'm hugely into. The reason why I feel strongly about politics isn't because I'm like, I just love seeing people win. It's because I want to see them do good things with the power that they have uh, rather than just gain it for their own ego or personal interests or whatever. But even if you are to take that argument and say, okay, I agree with you. Winning is the most important thing. Well, Jamie Driscoll does have a track record of winning. There isn't an indication that he wouldn't be successful this time around. What the Labour Party has done is yanked somebody who did the thing that they wanted to do, contest an election, and he won. He did what was expected of him, he did it well, and simply because he's aligned with a faction that the leadership doesn't like, that the leadership wants to drum out of public life, they're willing to get rid of him and replace him with somebody who might not do the same thing as him. So it's something which even if you're not that concerned about democracy, you don't really care about voters getting a real choice. If you don't really care about constituency Labour parties and the membership getting a real choice, fine, fine, fine. But if you care about winning, wouldn't you want to stick with the proven winner? So I think that 
yeah, it's a crap justification. And even the real justification doesn't hold water. It's basically, we don't like this guy. Let's put him in the liquidating machine. It's ugly and it's horrible. This show will be back here tomorrow live from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.